G'day everyone, it's Millie Nolan here from the Livestock Collective and I'm so excited to introduce you all to our new podcast. The Livestock Leaders podcast will take you around Australia where you will meet advocates, influencers and champions of the livestock industry. These people work every day to share real, transparent and emotional stories of their involvement in the livestock industry. To start the series, we have brought in Pat Cool. Pat is the SCAS manager at Helene Australasian Livestock Traders, and he has a powerful story to share with you today. So how are you going, Pat? G'day, Millie. Good. Thank you. That's good. Now, Pat, you're getting thrown in the deep end a bit here as our first star guest, but we're going to start each episode with the same question. So what are three words you would describe yourself with? Uh, I'm a constant learner. Um, I'm a doer. I like to put those things into action but I'm always thinking. It's, uh, it drives me nuts. I don't get a lot of sleep at night once the brain gets going. So you've told us your three things. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so uh, from WA, uh, producer family. So I grew up on cattle farms and cattle stations. Dad was a manager and um, now owns his own property. So cattle background, uh, went to school in the country, um, went to university in Perth and did finance and anthropology, not very ag-related. Um, but then while I was at uni, I found my way onto cattle boats doing live export, um, and that was sort of the gateway in, and then worked from there, worked in market um, for a live export company. So I'd been on the boats, got off the boat, um, stayed in Indonesia and did a bit of work there in Malaysia and in Thailand doing animal welfare training. Um, in the supply chain uh, to in destinations where they delivered cattle um, and then from there migrated back into the office and started managing that same animal welfare program but from the Perth office and still spending a fair bit of time travelling up there when I can pre-COVID um, to keep an eye on things. Yeah, cool. So at the start it was, what, just a bit of pocket money or you always knew? Yeah, yeah ultimate job for a um, uni student so you get to travel all over the world someone's paying you to do it so you, you know you get on the boat uh, you're getting paid to travel there um, while looking after livestock which was really in my ballpark so enjoyed both the journey there you know being at sea um, it's not something everyone gets to do you know you're out in the middle middle of the ocean on a massive ship with a couple thousand head of cattle it's it's kind of bizarre but really interesting uh, and then you get to the other end and a lot of uh, a lot of exporters are pretty lenient with how they manage their staff. So if you get to the other end, you want to have a look around. They're always uh, happy to let you spend a bit of time there, and then and they'll pay to fly you back. So for a uni student, you couldn't get a much better opportunity. And yeah, so every uni uni break, and and it may have uh, trailed into my uni semester a little bit. Every now and then, I was I was on the boats and went all over the world. It was really good, great um, experience. Yeah, you beauty. So you loved it. Yeah, no, it was awesome. I think. I can't remember. I think I might have gone to ten or twelve different company uh, countries um, doing that. So and and got paid to do it. Came back with enough money to buy booze and and pay my rent for the semester. So it was pretty good. <laughs> the booze—that's the important part when you're at uni, isn't it? Exactly. Um, so obviously, love travel. Uh, has COVID affected that? I'm assuming so. Yeah. So um, pre-COVID, um, in my role, I. Was pretty much once a month I'd go up into the countries that we export to. So Helene's export to Indonesia, Vietnam and Malaysia. Um, and we've done done a couple other countries in the past. So uh, pre-COVID, go up for a, about a week every month. Um, we've got staff in market that are overseeing the supply chain. 
um, and I'd go up and I'm their manager, so I'd go up and have a look around and, and see how they're doing their jobs and, and doing their roles um, and see the, the cattle, you know, in the feedlot, in the abattoir so that I've got the confidence myself you know what the conditions are up there and if they're satisfa- uh, satisfactory and meeting not just regulations but our expectations. Yeah absolutely so what does that look like how do you do a good job of that and how do you do a poor job of that? So under SCAS when we export livestock we're still responsible for them um, and through to their point of slaughter so uh, you know if we're exporting cattle into Indonesia they'll go up there and then they're in the feedlot for anywhere between 30 and 120, 140 days um, and then of course slaughtered at an abattoir. So if you're doing the roll well, um, the animal all the way through from when it's delivered all the way to point of slaughter, it's, you know, it's being treated in a way that's compliant with Australian regulations and those regulations, you know, they're Australian standard and in some cases probably slightly above Australian standard. So, um, you know, it is a challenging thing logistically to make sure that every one of those animals all the time are being looked after to those standards. Um, so if you're doing it well, you've got really good systems in place, really good people uh, on the ground up there um, maintaining oversight. Um, so you've got integrity through your system, it's functioning well um, and, and you're not missing any of those animals. And, and at the end of the day, you know, the, the bad outcome you're trying to avoid is animal animal suffering so any incidents you know there's been plenty of highly publicized uh things in in live export which is when it goes wrong and that's really what we're trying to avoid so the the standard you know when they're in a good feedlot and they're in a good abattoir um the animal welfare standard is very high and it's just making sure that the small you know the 0.01 percent of cases where it goes wrong which in any large system you know you do you do have breakdowns in the system it's trying to avoid those little one percenters and make sure they don't happen yeah that's it minimize risk it's like any industry isn't it Mm. so pretend i'm a five-year-old what actually is scas yeah okay uh so once we export livestock from australia so cattle um and sheep uh there are australian standards in place for how they're treated so this is really really unique thing where you've got you've got a company you're selling a product to a customer, so it's like pretend you, you know, you sell someone a bicycle, and then the Australian government's got Australian standards for how you ride that bicycle and where you ride it. Well, the company that sold it to the customer is r- responsible for making sure they follow those regulations. So, really unique situation and really challenging thing to do, um, but we've been able to do it pretty well. So, effectively, we export the cattle. Um, so we buy them here in Australia. We put them in a yard in Australia for a couple of days to make sure we do our health checks um, and settle the cattle prior to putting them on a ship. Um, once it's all clear, we get the all clear from the Australian government vet that they're all good to travel. Uh, we put them on a boat. Um, so a typical voyage up to Indonesia is about four or five days um, if we're going out to Darwin. Um, and then we deliver them to a customer. So I'm using Indonesia because it's the largest export destination for us. Um, delivered to them in, in a port in Indonesia, they, they transport them to their feedlot in the feedlot for 30 to a, yeah, 120 days um, and then and then they get moved through uh, to an abattoir and slaughtered. So for SCAS, um, from when they're delivered in market at the port, um, our job is to have oversight of those cattle. So we do that uh, two ways. We've got our own staff, so they're travelling around non-stop 
to these feedlots and abattoirs and looking at the conditions themselves and the systems and practices to make sure they comply with the standards. And then we also um, engage with third-party auditors. So auditing companies are completely separate from us. They come in and, the, and they look at the conditions as well. They do a formal audit against the standards and make sure that everything's compliant um, and that's all checked off by the Australian government as well. So, you know, in Indonesia, if you're exporting, um, you know, 50,000, 100,000 head into Indonesia, you know, they might be spread across 15, 20 feedlots and then they might go out and be processed in anywhere, you know, 60, 70, 80 different abattoirs. So there's a lot of cattle moving to a lot of destinations. Um, so you need a really, uh, it's a complex um, system to have the oversight that you need to have. Um, and you've got to be smart how you do about uh, how you go about it. You've got to have the right people in the right places at the right time um, to mitigate those risks. So that's sort of what we do. Love the bike analogy, but it's not quite as simple as just selling a bike, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the five-year-old version. Um, so you're speaking about all these other countries. Like, what's your relationship with them, and how has it been between Australia and countries like Indonesia? Yeah, so to do something as challenging as SCAS, you know, it is really unique in trying to impose conditions on a customer because, you know, they've bought the product, they own it. In theory, they can do what they want with it. So if you want to impose those regulations on them, you've got to have a really good relationship. That's, that's really the basis for making it work. Um, you can't do it at arm's length. You've got to have um, day-to-day -day interaction with those uh, customers uh, you've got to make sure you both see eye to eye. So you've got, you know, we've got the same values um, at the core of it with it, all of our customers. Where everyone wants good animal welfare outcomes, you know, both um, personally but also um, from a commercial standpoint. Good, uh, good animal welfare um, equates to good commercial outcomes. So everyone's on the on the same page um, with those basics, but then very different cultures and how they go about things. So that's the real challenging part. So you've got to have a good relationship with them because um, we tr we communicate to them what's required to sort of to meet our standards. They've got to translate that into well, how do you make that happen in a country like Indonesia or a country like Vietnam? And they take very different approaches. Uh, Vietnam, um, uh, the type of culture they've got, they're very much you know you give it to them on a piece of paper, they'll read it, they'll translate it literally, and they'll go and do it the next day. It's amazing what they can do in a very short amount of time very happy to adopt completely new practices if they've been convinced that that's the best way to do it that's enough for them they'll be doing it that way the next day uh indonesia is a little bit different there's uh um a completely different culture um a lot of tradition uh a lot of systems that have been in place for a very long time um so you really have to work within the system to make it happen and, and of course so we you know we consult uh with local resources up there to, to to work through those challenges and you know the the um translation and the and difficulties like that um and by doing that um we've been able to make it happen but it's all based on having that really good relationship to start with yeah very um complex there's a lot to it but for them to go through that they clearly value our product exactly yeah exactly that that's the main motivator at the end of the day um, it is a condition on buying Australian livestock and it's made um, very clear to them before they buy them that this is the expectation 
uh, and it's very much a system of if, if you don't comply with those requirements or well, you don't get another shipment. Um, so uh, Australia's got a really good reputation. Our products, you know, green, disease-free Australian beef and, and live animals. So they do really want them. It's pretty, you know, in the Southeast Asia region, there's there's a lot of disease around um, the genetics uh, in the region. Uh, you know, Australia's got the edge there. So they're really looking for that Australian product. And uh, yeah, we we ta- we tack on the uh, SCAS requirement on top of it. It's a big ask, but um, you know it does align with what they want as well. So they've been able to make it happen. You're also the vice chair of the Young Livestock Exporter Network, or I'm just going to call it Wylan. Tell us what is that group? Like, why why does it exist? Yeah, okay. So I'll give you a little bit of the background, maybe. Um, so Wylan, I think we're in our third year now. Um, started off with just a few of us, uh, a few young people working for different export companies. Um, you know, we're just we're at the bar at an industry event and uh, all of us had been trying to get a bit of training on something specific. I can't remember what it was. It was like Excel or something quite boring. Um, and we sort of were having this discussion, looked around and said, you know, most other industries have got some young professional program going on and the live export industry didn't have one. So there wasn't that sort of avenue to access training as a young professional or someone sort of coming up through the ranks wanting to learn new skills. So we decided, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make something up. We'll get it started. And originally we thought it was going to be about, we really thought the upper limit of our member number was going to be 20 people. We thought we'd struggle to get that. So we were thinking maybe, you know, one or two events a year, you know, we'd run a training day for half a day and then get one of the exporters to put on a carton of cans um, for a social event and um, we started off and pretty soon we had 100 members um, all paying their membership fees so the committee the committee got a real kick in the ass and decided oh okay there's a lot of people here in this industry wanting the same thing which is professional development effectively so training there's also a networking element to it you know they're looking around and they're seeing other people in the industry they sort of want to get to know them and find out how everyone else is doing what they're doing so yeah, the committee really had to get our um, uh, get into gear and get things moving along. So the first two years was you know really playing catch up and and sort of making it up as we went. We had heaps of support within the industry. Um, it's been really good. All the industry bodies, Live Corp, ALEC, uh, MLA have gotten behind us, and the export companies. Everyone obviously thinks it's a good idea. It's a win-win for everyone. Um, companies in the industry, their young people um, get training and the and the networking element is really good as well for younger people um, in the industry because you know you rely on contacts. If you need something done, a new service that you don't already have an existing provider, if you've already made a contact through YLN or whatever it is at a, at a social event, you go, oh, I already know someone. Or if another big one for us is or that I've experienced is you run into a problem at work and you go, oh, I don't know how to get through this. But if you've made a contact, someone else who does the same role, you've now got someone you can you can call and say, hey, how do you get through this situation when you run into it? So that's really what we're trying to provide. So we're um, throughout the year, we run a series of uh, uh, professional development um, events. So we've done like negotiating courses, Excel courses, um, things like that. So we try and run one in each uh, sort of area. So WA, we try and do North and South, Northern Territory, Queensland, and then um, down in the Southern region as well. And then we tack a few um, 
social events on around the industry events as well just to give everyone an opportunity to new, meet new people and yeah i've been in, involved in it from the start of um as the vice chair and it's been really amazing like w- we really did think that we would struggle to get 20 people involved and uh, i think at the moment we've got close to 140 members yeah, um wow. so it's just amazing there's so many young people in this industry that are keen to learn um keen to meet new people and sort of put their face out there so it's yeah it's been really um really interesting to be involved in yeah it's been great so basically you had too many beers and then you got basically got yeah. In too deep. <laughs> yeah we woke up and we'd <laughs> made the commitment and um away we went so um yeah probably one of the better things i've done when i'm drunk so i've no, done well it's, <laughs> it's turned out really good <laughs> Yeah, I think that networking in agriculture is a massive thing and it's definitely a goal of the Livestock Collective and the Livestock Leaders Project is to collaborate and network just like what Wyland you guys do. So vice chair from the start, hey? Yeah, I even got voted back in, which was amazing. Whoa. So um, <laughs> no, that was pretty cool. It was uh, good to get the voter confidence. Um, so yeah, so we've got a new committee um, somewhat this year. So Kari Moffat, who previously was a secretary, has stepped up to be the chair um, and I'm, I'm a vice chair. Camille Camp has come on as secretary and we've got Ryan Olive has come on as our treasurer. So it's been awesome to have two new faces on the committee. Really fresh perspective. They brought, they've brought some really good ideas forward. Kari and I have been a little bit shocked at, at some of the ideas that they've thrown to us, but they're really good ideas. So um, we're in a phase now, so this is really the second committee to be in charge of Wyland. Um, we've had a great start. Um, John Cunnington and uh, Grayson Webster got us off to a really good start. This committee's uh, got an opportunity now. We've got money in the bank. We've got heaps of members who are really passionate um, about what we're doing and want to get involved and want to support us. You know, and and want to get value out of this network. So we do have a responsibility as a committee to provide them value for their membership fee. So we're trying to move the network, you know, from a situation where we were really making it up on the fly for the first two years. We were just blown away by the membership number. Um, and we're, we're trying to formalise it a little bit more now going forward. So we want to put in place a strategy that's, you know, it's got a five-year vision for it. Um, we continue to build. Uh, we make sure we're providing value to members and that we can demonstrate that we're doing that. Uh, and then as a committee... We want to make sure that, you know, come the next AGM, if there is a change of personnel on the committee, that they've got a clear vision going forward. They've got a, got a bit of a program in front of them. Um, so we've got continuity, consistency, you know, members and the committee both know what the program is, what they're getting out of being involved in Wyland and, um, and that they're always getting value. So that's the, that's the plan for the committee this year and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, good. I was going to ask you your short-term, short-term goals and, and long-term goals, but I think you've covered it. Um, there's obviously a place for Wyland in the live export industry, so good on you guys and Kari and all of them for, for starting it up and obviously with the help of a few beers. Um, you're also part of our program. You became a livestock leader in um, the beginning of 2020. How have you put into practice or have you put into practice the skills that you learned in advocacy? Yeah, I, the big one for me from that uh, that course, I did really enjoy it. We did a bit of social media stuff and, and actually producing media. I remember that was really interesting, uh, learning a bit about that. I haven't traditionally had a big online profile, uh, but it was, it was good to see the inner workings of that. Uh, I remember we did a session on actually talking on microphone, which was really useful. It's something that 
uh, I've actually used since. So I have done a couple of um, events, uh, sorry, interviews where where I've been uh, interviewed on mic and just having, you know, the skill. So just having talking points and knowing what you're doing and, and not being m- nervous around a microphone paid off hugely. Matt Brand put me on live uh, on his channel once and uh, and it actually went really well because I'd done the training and I, and I sort of knew what I was doing. So that's been really good and then also the networking element of it. So there was a few people there that I knew of but I didn't know them um, and then of course by the end of the couple of days that you do, um, you do know them, you've made that relationship and that connection so they're people that I can now reach out to like I was mentioning um, if, I need, if I need something. And just in general, you know, we've all kept in touch and 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 talk regularly. So there's been um, a lot of good relationships made there, and and that for me that was a real benefit of it. Yeah, awesome. I'm glad to hear that you've put into practice some of the skills that you learnt. Full disclosure, Pat actually helped me out with my microphone before recording this podcast. So thank you, Pat. <laughs> um, you spoke a little about social media. Obviously, a really powerful tool that we can use to advocate with, but it does open up a few avenues for some keyboard warriors um and as we know they can be really nasty and aggressive have you had anything like have you experienced online bullying uh not so much to my knowledge so i've got a bit of an interesting take on social media so i really uh, i I see it as a as a place to connect with people that i want to speak to so I, i curate the list of people that i follow really hard um i'm pretty hard on the block button if i need to be i haven't need needed to be to be honest uh, when it comes to me posting content, uh, I don't follow up. I post things and then I just forget about it. I, I'm, I don't go back and read comments. So I'm actually fairly oblivious to any nasty comments I get. Um, if, if I ever hear about them, they're pointed out by someone else. But that really helps. So I actually don't know um, that anyone in the world actually dislikes me. So um, it's been good. Uh, Pat, I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit, but someone does dislike you. Um, Can't be true. <laughs> obviously, with our social media, we're actually quite um, engaged with what goes on because we are conscious that when we give you guys the tools to advocate, you are you are putting your head out of the water a little bit. So, is it okay if I read you something that someone said about you? Go for it. <laughs> All right, I've just got it here. I just wait for it to to load. It's got your beautiful headshot that you got in our workshop. Well, that was one of the benefits is I actually had a nice picture of myself to give to people if they asked one. So that was Oh, so you used it? Oh, I've, I've used it a dozen times since. Oh, yeah, good. it's amazing. Well, here it is. All right. This is it. You would think one would want to hide their involvement in this barbaric hell on earth, wouldn't you? Nope, not this bloke. He's as proud as punch. Must be all the blood money he's filling his pockets with. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Yeah, well, the first part is there's not that much money in it, so uh, um, I'm glad they think so. Um, no, everyone's entitled to their opinion. That was quite poetic. I I enjoyed that. Um, it can be pretty clever. Yeah. No, that's one of the less nasty ones. I have seen uh, other people in the that did the Livestock Leaders uh, workshop send through some you know personal messages that people have sent to them. Pretty horrendous stuff. Um, yeah, my, my take on it is I, I just don't don't have any time for it if someone's asking a legit a legitimate question about the trade or you know what i do happy to answer them um i enjoy having a conversation with someone that i don't agree with i I actually find that a good challenge uh but anything that includes any level of personal attack uh i just don't engage at all i'm pretty happy to delete that and 
and block the person. They're obviously not um, coming to the conversation to learn anything. They're just the, they're just there to rail on people. And, and uh, the check that I always do is I just look at their profile picture. And if, if it's a, actually a picture of a person, I might engage with them. But if it's a picture of a frog or a cat or something, I just don't even read the comment. So it's a pretty good early filter for that type of thing. My profile picture's a, a frog. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> awkward. Awkward. Sorry, no, I've probably already blocked you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really mature approach to it because, um, yeah, it can be really overwhelming and having that, um, yeah, that skill to, to ignore it when, when you need to is, is really important. Yeah, it's a hard thing to ignore. Like, you know, it is, it is someone having a crack at what you do every day and, and most of the time, you know, it's backed by a lot of ignorance and you just think of the work you would need to do to change that person's life. A lot of people who are animal advocates and if they're, you know, there are lots of good animal advocates in the world doing a lot of good work in the animal welfare space and then there's a few on the fringe that spend all day on Facebook. If that person really thinks that, you know, spending your day on Facebook stalking people and, and putting horrible comments and sending them messages is achieving anything positive for an animal anywhere in the world, they're wrong. They're a poor animal advocate and they should go and do something more effective. Yep, you would not believe some of the words that we have to block on our socials. Like, it's just... I think I would. It's like a child <laughs> wrote them. Like, a child got a list yeah. of all the rules that they were told not to say and yeah. and just went bang with it. Um, so, if you're going to teach someone, like, some of our listeners are probably dealing with this as we speak. Like, what would be your tips? To start with, it would be, honestly, if they don't have a profile picture... Don't read the comment. Just look for the delete button before you read it. You don't have to listen to everyone. That's probably the big one for me is at some point in your life you learn that you don't have to listen to what everyone says and you don't actually have to give them the time of day. So uh, it's not very good advice. Some people, you know, are just the type of people that are going to want to know um, and are going are gonna to care. Um, I find it hard to do so. So do you advocate in other ways? Like do you prefer that one-on-one conversation when you can? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I really enjoy, you know, you work in live export, every dinner party you go to, if uh, if it comes up in conversation, you will be the centre of attention for the next hour. I'm sure everyone in the industry uh, knows what's that, what that's like. So that's where I try and do my work is sort of interacting with people one-on-one. Um, I have written a few articles and stuff like that, so I try and get my opinion out uh, that way. Um and, but yeah, mainly in person is the way I find it's best to do it. And I find that one-on-one is far more effective than in a, in a group. And trying to change someone's mind in a group is, group setting is almost impossible. Uh, you're better off, especially in the dinner party setting, because you can ruin a din- dinner party talking <laughs> about live export animal welfare regulations for an hour, because it always heads towards slaughter regulations somehow. Um, I always find it best to be like, oh, I can tell you more about it, you know, in a while when we're having a beer or something like that. And one-on-one, I find that people are really open to it and very respectful and and um, they sort of, they're a bit more generous in how they approach um, the conversation. Whereas if they're in front of an, a group of people, if there's, if there's any type of audience, it's not really a conversation. It's really a debate and someone's trying to win. Uh, so one-on-one is is the way to go, um, but you don't have to have one-on-one conversations with everyone. So y- you know there is a there's a perspective with people on the internet that you should you know you should respond to everyone on the internet, and I, I 
I don't follow that advice. I think there's a threshold if people aren't showing, you know, a level of respect or at least a willingness to have a mature conversation. Um, so I don't think they deserve the time of day. Yeah. And did you ruin a few dinner parties before you figured all this oh, yeah. out? You can ask my partner about that. <laughs> <laughs> Episode two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's your horror story. Ruining Christmas dinner. Oh, Christmas. You didn't. Talking about halal slaughter methods. Oh, Whoopsie God. daisy. Well, moving on. Um, looking down the track into the future, I might be a little bit hazy at the moment with COVID, but what do you think are the biggest challenges or threats, I guess, to the live export industry? Uh, there's an obvious one around price. The cattle price in Australia is making things very difficult, but, you know, producers have got to have a win from time to time. Um, you know, I'll, I'll speak in my sort of wheelhouse, which is animal welfare. So there is, there's just a constant creep in animal welfare regulation. Some of it's good, you know, if you've got fact-based um, policy decision-making. So, you know, you change a policy and it actually does improve animal welfare outcomes. That's good. Um, and I'm sure just about everyone in the industry would support that. But there is some policy change that doesn't achieve any animal welfare outcome. A positive animal welfare outcome and it just costs money and and that regulatory cost uh, just keeps building and building and building and really sometimes just setting an impossible task with uh, some of the regulations that get written in Canberra in an office um, down there and and you know we've got to translate them into reality in a in an in a town in Indonesia uh, you know across a language barrier and a political and cultural barrier some of them um, can be very challenging. So we like to engage as much as we can in the regulatory space. Um, I'm not sure how typical this is across industries, like other industries, but in the live export industry, pretty much every live exporter has a full-time staff member um, who spends their time, you know, uh, engaging in the regulatory space, policy space, you know, working with ALEC, who's the uh, industry rep body, Live Corp, MLA, um, just working on this constant policy change and compliance regulation. So uh, the compliance job for live exporters is massive because you've got really stringent regulations. And again, some of them are really good, um, some of them not so good. Uh, and it's really complicated to put them in place with a live animal. You know, this it's kind of like a commodity trading industry um but you've got a live animal you know living eating uh animal so it can be really complicated and that means that the regulations have to be really complicated um and so developing them you know you've got to have both a pragmatic view to it to make sure that what you're doing is actually doing some good um, and but you've also got to you know work within the policy space in Canberra, so it can be a real challenge, and that's I think that's one of the biggest challenges to the industry. Yeah, and you're obviously passionate about improving that animal welfare, and that comes in with these regulations. But are you talking about it being evidence based and actually productive in doing so, rather than? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, in Canberra, well, everyone's seen it. Live export is a very political. Um, uh, industry or it's in the political limelight a lot so there are decisions that come down from upstairs you know um, directly uh, where where you know the minister wants something changed overnight 
and uh, that can make it really challenging um, for not just us, but for the policymakers as well. You know, they're going to translate that into reality. You know, what does that one sentence request from the minister uh, get translated in, into at a regulatory level and then translated into in practice? And has that achieved the desired outcome? So, um, yeah, there's constant work. There's constant regulatory reform. Um, I shouldn't bash too much on on the regulator. They, you know, they do reform uh, regulations and they do take input uh, from the live export industry. Um, it's just that the, the whole process is very challenging, uh, and making sure that you get a good regulatory outcome can be very difficult. Yeah, and I think it's definitely an industry that comes under so much public scrutiny as well like and I think being a young person just in general we're so conscious of of what goes on in the world of of being sustainable and things like that that we have historically not been so in touch with so yeah that's definitely a challenge do you think there are also some new opportunities for your industry yeah the the cool thing in the space that I work in so we're you know you're a live export you're a private company implementing a well animal welfare program so I've got this odd view of it, whereas you can sort of look at us as an animal advocacy uh, group. So in Australia, there's you know there's charity organisations, there, animal advocacy groups get a get a lot of funding, and they focus a lot on policy or company um, campaigns. Uh, us as a live exporter, we've got this really unique opportunity in a foreign market. So you know, in a place like Indonesia or Vietnam, you know, the whole of Southeast Asia. The animal welfare space, especially for cattle, cattle doesn't get a lot of focus um, by animal advocacy. They're generally focused on chickens and pigs because they're large numbers of animals. So cattle sort of go under the radar a little bit. Uh, And there's really not a lot of animal advocacy groups doing work on cattle or in the cattle space in Southeast Asia. So we're in there pushing our animal welfare program uh, in a place where there's sort of a vacuum of that type of work happening. So it's really it's really interesting work. We deal with say the Department Department of Veterinary Services in Malaysia. We we as a private company are interacting with them directly, discussing animal welfare policy in Malaysia. Uh, so it's really unique opportunity for an Australian company to get to have a positive impact in a foreign country. And a lot of the animal advocacy groups in Australia, they'd kill for that opportunity to be able to go to a foreign country and talk directly to the policymakers over there and have a positive impact. Um, and, and not just at a policy level, also on the ground, like we're actually in the feedlots, in the abattoirs, we're doing training. We've got our staff over there with oversight and we're getting to work because of our commercial relationship with the companies over there. So company-level animal welfare campaigns are generally seen to be the most effective spend of animal advocacy um, money. So, you know, because you, you get the company on boards like McDonald's or, or a large um, egg producing company or something like that, you get them to make a change and it'll happen overnight. Um, so we're getting that access to really, you know, large-scale cattle enterprises in Indonesia and we've got a commercial relationship already, and then we're also pushing an animal welfare message on them. So uh, for me, that's that's sort of the opportunity is just doing more of that, and maybe more at the policy level. And is that something that's unique to Australia, or are other exporting countries doing that as well? Uh, as far as I know, it's unique to us. Yeah, and and just as a method of of um, pushing animal welfare 
um, advocacy. I think it's really unique to be pushing it on your customer. So a lot of animal advocacy campaigns you would have seen, you know, you go into the store and there's cage-free eggs or whatever it is. You're trying to get the consumer to give the the commercial enterprises an incentive to go cage-free because, you know, you campaign um, on all the consumers and you're trying to get them to make a decision to go for the animal welfare positive option and the idea is that will then incentivize companies to change to that more positive animal welfare practice. Um, for us, it's the other way around. The company is saying, you, the customer, can, can only buy our product if you comply with this higher level of animal welfare. So it's it's really unique um, way to campaign for positive animal welfare and, and I believe it is only Australia doing it. Yeah, you've really tipped on its head, haven't you, with the consumer-customer journey? Yeah, that's right. Okay, Pat, we're going to finish up soon, but I just want to ask you one more question. If you could get one key message out there for everyone to hear and understand, like including these animal activists, what would it be? Uh, it'd be to take a broader view of animal welfare in Southeast Asia. So for the live export trade, you know, it's cattle into Southeast Asia's a lion's share of the volume that we do. We do do a lot of other countries, but um, smaller numbers, more specialty um, types of cattle, breeding cattle, dairy cattle, that sort of stuff. But the, the large uh, quantity of it goes into Indonesia and Vietnam. You've got to look at it from a perspective of all the animals in that region. So, you know, Indonesia uh, has its own cattle population and its own cattle production systems. Uh, and the Australian animals only represent a portion of that. So when we're sending the Australian animals into Indonesia and spending Australian dollars um, uh, to push animal welfare uh, and, you, you know, leveraging our commercial relationships uh, and, and also at, at a sort of policy level as well um, to improve animal welfare, like, for example, conditions at slaughter point for cattle in Indonesia or Vietnam, so, you know, we go in there and we encourage them to uptake stunning so they and give them some support to do that. I should say that also the importers themselves are very supportive of all these programs as well. They're really the ones that um, can make it happen. So by raising the standard for the Australian animals in that, in that market, all the local animals benefit from that as well because all of a sudden there's 200 abattoirs in Indonesia using stunning that weren't using stunning before. Um, but it's not just stunning. That's why it's held up as sort of the, the example. But it's all, all sorts of practices over there. It's improving transport conditions or animal handling practices in feedlots or even nutrition, like even really basic stuff. So, you know, the, the catchphrase is you're exporting animal welfare and not just um, live animals. So that's my perspective. I sort of consider myself an animal welfare advocate um, and I think that... Uh, cattle specifically in the Southeast Asian region in countries that we export to um, are far better off for there being Australian animals there and uh, Australian companies and you know MLA supporting us, Live Corp, ALEC um, to really push that animal welfare message and change practices. Um, it's, got a, it's got a really positive impact on all those other animals. So if you're an animal advocate, I think, I think you really should support the trade. Yeah, wow. Um, if only everyone could understand that and listen to this and actually take that on board, Pat. <laughs> it's a hard message it to is. get across.
You just need to build your follower base, Millie, and then everyone <laughs> will know about it. That's the, that's the plan, Pat. I'll get your key message out there one day. Um, so thank you so much for coming to join us on the Livestock Leaders podcast. Yeah, I have a wonderful story to tell, um, and I hope you sharing this can empower others to, to share their own stories. And I hope everyone's taken home something today about SCAS and um, Wylan and animal welfare and the impact that Australia has on other countries. A big thank you to our audience for listening. Um, as I said in the introduction, this is our brand spanking new podcast and this is the very first episode. But rest assured, every fortnight we'll be releasing a new episode with more leaders and champions throughout the livestock industry. So please subscribe or leave a review and join our community on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn at Livestock Leaders to hear more real and empowering stories. Music.